Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I am Huma Huck, the Associate Director of the South Asia Center here at the Atlantic Council. And on behalf of my colleagues and our President, Frederick Kemp, I'd like to welcome you all here this morning for a discussion on non-traditional security challenges and threats in South Asia um, with Ambassador Lathareddy. So more often than not, when one thinks of challenges in South Asia, the first ones that come to mind are defense, particularly with nuclear-armed neighbors, uh, governance, and economic growth. However, with South Asia housing well over 20% or well over a fifth of the world's population, making it, most, making it both the most populous and the most densely populated geographical region in the world, a closer eye needs to be paid to non-traditional security challenges as rapidly growing populations are increasing urbanization and putting tremendous strain on available land and other resources. And so trying to bring all of the South Asian countries to see eye to eye on traditional security concerns is usually hampered by conflicting domestic and, and, and foreign policy priorities. However, there are emerging non-traditional security, security issues in South Asia that are of common concern to countries across the region, including water scarcity, food security, climate change and its environmental impacts, and increasing cyber warfare. India in particular is home to almost 17% of the world's population, and by 2050, it, the population is expected to rise to 1.6 billion people, so even surpassing, potentially surpassing China. And so rural poverty and unemployment are driving increasing migration to urban areas, which is in turn causing overpopulation and reduced access to fresh water, electricity, sanitation, and other critical services. So the traditional, the non-traditional security threats of tomorrow could become sources of future traditional conflict if we don't address them today, and they have an immediate impact. They have an immediate human impact on South Asian countries, with implications for both future domestic and regional stability. And so, as as India positions itself to play a leading role in South Asia as as well as globally, the, Modi, the Prime Minister Modi's administration is investing in strengthening security relationships and accelerating economic growth and increasing trade to champion this new outlook. However, they face several of the aforementioned challenges that they need to address. And so Ambassador uh, Reddy is here to shed some light on the policy implications of these threats, including looming food and water crises, climate change, and cyber warfare, and how India can and will play a leading role on these issues within and beyond its borders. She doesn't really need an introduction, but I'm going to give you just a few snippets from her background. Um, Ambassador Latha Reddy is a former Deputy National Security Advisor of India. She has served, um, she served in the Indian Foreign Service for many years, and during her diplomatic career, she served in Lisbon, in Washington, D.C., in Kathmandu, Brasilia, Durban, Vienna, and Bangkok. She was also the Ambassador of India to Portugal and to Thailand. She was Secretary East in the MEA, um, with overall charge of India's bilateral and regional relations with Asia. She was then appointed as the Deputy uh, NSA from 2011 to 2013. She has extensive experience in foreign policy, as well as in bilateral, regional, and multilateral negotiations. I would also like to mention that she is a member of our South Asia Center's India-Pakistan Water Cooperation Project and a very active and important member. So thank you for being here with us today, and please, the floor is yours. Thank you. When, uh, well, thank you very much, Huma. And um, in absentia, I'd like to thank the director of the South Asia Center, uh, Bharat Gopal Swami, who actually set this up but couldn't be with us uh, here today. Um, you know, it, for me, it's a great delight to come to Washington because apart from everything else, I used to live and work in Washington a very long time ago, probably before some of you were born. It was 1980 to 1983 in the Reagan years. And uh, so I've been following the debates on the elections with, uh, with keen interest and uh, amazed that it starts so early in the US as compared to other countries. You know? So I can see that you've got a very tumultuous year and year and a little ahead of you. But uh, coming back to the subject of today's um, talk, or interaction. I'm hoping it'll be more of an interaction and less of a talk, so I propose to restrict my remarks to about 15 minutes, and then, you know, Huma will, of course, yep. set the ball rolling with a few questions, and I hope all of you will ask me questions as well. Uh, when I looked at the brief that had been given to me, which was basically that um, India's positioning itself to play a leading role in Asia and globally, and the Modi administration is investing in strengthening security relationships, accelerating economic growth, and increasing trade to bolster this new outlook or image of India. And But that it, it pointed out that India does face several non-traditional security threats, 
which can limit our power trajectory if it is not addressed effectively. And specific uh, areas that were mentioned were water security, climate change, and cyber warfare. And how should India play a leading role on these issues within and beyond its borders? Um, let me begin by giving my take on how India views non-traditional security challenges. I think in recent years, it's the whole concept of non-traditional security challenges has assumed greater salience in, in, in India. You know, perhaps some years ago, people wouldn't have really appreciated the difference to the same extent as a security issue between these areas and other areas. Uh, and I think this is happening both in academic and in policy circles. The traditional security was military means to deal with both external and internal threats to unity, territorial integrity, and sovereignty of a state. This has been the traditional definition. That's the traditional realist view. Now, the debate includes a broader view which envisages threats to individual rights as very important and could include a variety of topics including climate change, food security, which we've already mentioned, water, energy, environment, and um, uh, health and even organized uh, crime. Uh, in 1994, the UNDP uh, report actually placed the individual at the center of the discourse on security. And they talked about six clusters of non-traditional security issues, uh, human rights abuses, genocide, poverty, diseases, um, and, uh, nuclear, uh, chemical and biological weapons, and organized crime. Um, even terrorism and the responsibility to protect have been discussed and continue to be discussed under the non-traditional uh, rubric. Uh, there are two views. One is, uh, in, I'm talking about within the security establishment in India as well. One view is that it's excellent that the concept of security has been expanded to include all these areas, economic progress, energy, food and water, climate change, financial stability, good governance, and so on. The second view is if the concept of security becomes so large and diffused that it covers practically every area of human endeavor, it is not helpful in understanding or prioritizing among security challenge and no guide will remain to the actions required to deal with the most important and immediate threats. So that's an interesting way of looking at it because that's the, the positive aspect and the negative aspect. Um, there's no denying, but uh, in my view, that you have to expand the traditional views of security. Because in today's world, you have a competition for resources, you have globalization, and you have interdependence. And given that, uh, our viewpoint on what constitutes security has to change. The topic is so vast, and so I have decided to restrict my remarks to the three areas mentioned specifically, which is water, climate change, and cyber, and how these issues impact on India and South Asia in general. Water and food security. In a sense, for India, water and security and food security are inextricably interlinked. Uh, WHO estimates that over 100 million Indians lack access to safe water today. 21% uh, of communicable diseases in India are related to water. This is only likely to worsen. But let's examine what has caused this water crisis in India. The primary reason is there's insufficient water per person as a result of population growth and not very abundant water resources to begin with. Uh, just to give you a few figures, uh, it's usable water available is estimated between 1,500 to 1,000 cubic meters of water per person per year. That's forecast to go down to 1,000 cubic meters very soon. Uh, the standard for water, for declaring a country water stressed is if the availability is less than 1,700 cubic meters per person per year. India earlier, with a smaller population and I would say less stress on water, had 3,000 to 4,000 cubic meters per year, per person. This is 1951 figures. 
So you can see the gradual decline where now we're below 1,500 and heading to 1,000. The U.S., for example, has 8,000 cubic meters per person per year. So you can see the vast divide in this as in other areas. Uh, the second issue is poor water quality. Uh, there's a lack of urban uh, water treatment facilities and most river water is not fit to drink and in many places not fit to even bathe in, you know, because the levels of pollution are so high. Uh, and on the whole, I would say effluent controls of industries and sewage control, pollution control overall is poor. So this is another additional factor. But the major cause, in my opinion, because the major user of water resources in India is agriculture. And there's dwindling groundwater supplies, there's over-extraction, and as groundwater is an open resource, anyone can tap groundwater. And it's very, very common in India for, in, particularly in agriculture, small farmers dig bore wells, they use pumps to pump up groundwater, and the water is not being recharged. So gradually your groundwater supplies are drying up. And, uh, you know, with highly fragmented land ownership, it's very difficult to organize this, this sector because you have millions of farmers, you have an average farm size of less than two hectares. And uh, this has a, a been described as a tragedy of this commons in India because it, it is really depleting the land and depleting the, uh, the water available to the farmers. India extracted 251 billion cubic meters of groundwater in 2010, but the U.S. had to extract only 112 billion cubic meters. And uh, the rate of uh, extraction has risen from 80 billion cent uh, cubic meters in India in 1980 to 251, which I mentioned. But in the U.S., it's been more or less constant from 1980 onwards. That's why this has become an increasing problem in India, you know, because the level of extraction is rising very rapidly. Uh, the question is, how do we address this? Um, you know, you'd have to increase irrigation, you'd have to create water storage facilities, and you have to increase the areas which are irrigated, you have to introduce new high-yield technologies or expand cultivable land. Expanding land is the most difficult of it because arid land to be made cultivable is almost impossible. And uh, so the only solution is really better local storage and recharge through watershed development. In the long run, dams are inevitable. But, uh, you know, even with full water recharge, uh, rainwater recharge, water harvesting and recycling, we'll still need to store water in reservoirs. And in order to create reservoirs, dams are a must. Uh, but otherwise the water drains out to, to the sea in monsoon floods. So, you know, the, the problem is that you get excellent monsoon rains, but most of that water just either drains away into the sea and is not captured. But as we all know, building dams is a very contentious matter. And in the dialogue which Huma referred to between India and Pakistan on water sharing, river, river water sharing, this has been a very big issue. Because uh, while the Indus Water Treaty clearly lays down how the waters are to be shared in the rivers, there is a feeling that you know the upper riparian, in this case India, uh, is depriving the lower riparian of adequate water and secondly that the uh, that the quality of the water coming through has been affected as well because of pollution and other uh, other issues so dam construction is complex but i don't think it can be avoided uh, storage dams can submerge forests destroy bio biodiversity displace people but we still need storage dams. Also, India's economic growth will be affected if we don't expand agricultural growth. India is very keen to be, continue to be self-sufficient on grains, and agriculture needs to grow at 4% per annum for India to achieve the overall growth rate of 8% per annum we're aiming for. So if agriculture has to grow, you have to introduce these uh, measures. And uh, 
the watershed development and tapping rainwater in small ponds and streams, what we call check dams, uh, to increase soil moisture and recharge groundwater and enable double cropping, has worked very well in small models run by NGOs and local authorities. I think the real challenge is to scale this up and to take it across the country and to establish common um, rules and regulations. This is easier said than done. Uh, because, you know, water is considered a state subject. In our system, in our federal system, the state is the, uh, as in the U.S., a state is a, a local uh, province or part of the country, and they have to determine how water is allocated or used. When you have 28 states and some union territories, it's very difficult to get 28 even treatments of a water policy or of any other policy for that matter. I mean, you belong to a federal system, so you understand exactly what I mean. And um, urban areas, again, very problematic. I've talked a lot about uh, agricultural areas, poor and leaky distribution networks, unaccounted water, uh, inadequate pricing, water theft, where people tap a water connection from another person, and uh, unbuilt connections. And then there as well, there's a tendency to deplete groundwater by wealthy individuals or apartment complexes sinking bore wells and sucking up uh, groundwater. So in, to a certain extent, but if you look at the overall utilization of water, agriculture is a huge part of it. Urban use is very small comparatively. So while uh, wasteful urban use is a bad idea, you know, the, the, the real problems have to be addressed in, uh, in uh, agriculture. Uh, recommendations. Empower local groups to manage groundwater. Cooperative agreements among aquifer users. Encourage watershed development. Educate people about the need for dams, because as you know, very vociferous opposition and a lot of NGOs and activists get into this and oppose the building of dams. Um, strengthen pollution boards to enforce effluent controls. Improve sewage treatment facilities, sustainable pricing systems, and water distribution systems. Food. How is food connected with this? It's obvious. If agriculture, food. 25% of the world's hungry are in India today. It's uh, you know, and the estimate for the 2050 population is 1.6 billion. And yes, as Huma said, India's forecast to become the most populous uh, country in the world. India has only 4% of the world's total resources. We already have 17% of the world's population, and it's likely to grow to over 20%. So there's an obvious mismatch here. We will require to produce more food in the future with less water available per capita. That's the conundrum. The Green Revolution was a huge success in the 60s and the 70s, and India became self-sufficient in food. Then you could ask the question, why are 25% of the world's hungry in India? That is because of inadequate distribution systems, inadequate safety nets for the very poor, and the inability to purchase food in many cases, uh, and which is another whole discourse which I don't propose to get into here. But agricultural productivity is in decline. And as I said, we need to put it into positive figures of 4% per year if we want to grow at 8% per year. And two-thirds of our population still depends on agriculture for a living. You know, it, the figures are just astounding. I, in another context, which I'll come to, which is uh, cyber, we estimated that for digital India aims to be achieved, 250,000 villages need to be connected. I mean, the number is just mind-boggling of how many local communities need to be empowered. And that's true in water, it's true in food security, and it's true in cybersecurity as well. Two-thirds of our population, as I said, depends on agriculture for a living. And I think the pricing of water has been a big issue, you know, because the free water to agriculture has encouraged wasteful use of water. So although it's a very contentious uh, subject, at some point the government will have to get to grips with this. And 
I think I'm going to now move to the to the external aspect of water and food because I see I'm very quickly overrunning my time. Given the transboundary nature of major river systems, regional governance of water is an important factor. Three major river systems originate from the Tibetan plateau, the Indus, the Ganges, and the Brahmaputra. And these are the largest rivers of uh, India. Uh, China has upstream advantages when it comes to these rivers. And this has caused diplomatic tensions because there is worry about what I exactly what I mentioned about upper riparian and lower riparian. There is always fear on the part of the lower riparian, and this is a given in any water dialogue, you know, that the upper riparian is somehow depriving it of water, which is its due. Uh, so India actually shares rivers either as an upper or a lower riparian with China, Nepal, Bhutan, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. So you can see that this is not an easy, uh, easy neighborhood as far as water relations uh, goes. Management decisions in one country affect multiple stakeholders in the region. And China's diversion and hydropower plan plans have got the potential to significantly reduce the flow into India. This has been the subject of many studies and many discussions, and it has been taken up bilaterally between the governments as well. India's hydro plans, in turn, can have effects on the water security of Pakistan and Bangladesh. And that has been the, the reason why I think the Atlantic Council decided to set up the dialogue between India and uh, Pakistan. And I think it would be interesting, Huma, if, if you could think about e expanding it to yeah. Bangladesh as, uh, as well, you know, and we could, and perhaps at some stage bringing in China as well into the discourse. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so interesting, the Tibetan plateau question, because I was talking to Lobsang Sange, you know, the uh, of the Tibetan administration in India, of the Tibetan refugees. And he was pointing out that really the Tibetan plateau gives water to all of Asia, because it's where the glaciers melt and where the river flows start into all the major rivers of uh, Asia. So he said that this is something that's not very readily recognized or uh, seen as the importance of the Tibetan Plateau and its rivers, not just for Tibet or for China, but for all of the world and all of Asia, essentially. So this is all the more reason to do as much as possible internally, but given the complexity of relationship with neighbors, and to address water use efficiency, storage, and to protect ourselves. And I would assume exactly the same holds good for Pakistan and for Bangladesh as well. They would also need to do exactly the same thing. So I think what we can do effectively, even if our dialogues don't progress very far in this matter, is to look at how do we address our own water and food insecurities or security issues. And this is hard work and must be done along with hydropower and water transfer projects, storage facilities. And, uh, you know, in, in the case of India, I cannot emphasize it enough because we are estimated to become seriously water stressed by 2025 and water scarce by 2050. So to me, this related issue of food and water security is, is one of the most serious non-traditional security challenges facing India. Moving on to climate change, you know, I would, uh, you know, like to quote from Sham Saran's article because I think he sums up the dilemma perfectly, that high expectations are being built around the forthcoming conference of the parties uh, to UNFCCC in Paris at the end of the year. And, uh, you know, the the mitigation commitments announced by China and the U.S. Uh, have kind of inspired a certain expectation that India would also announce some kind of uh, emission control. The agreed template is essentially a pledge and review approach with each country submitting voluntary contributions and accepting some form of international review of implementation. 
but they would include not just mitigation actions, but also measures to adapt to climate change, contributions in finance and technology. But it's certain already that the pledges given so far, including those from China to US, will not be sufficient to keep global temperature rise below 2 degrees centigrade, which is the stated objective of the negotiations. There are varying estimates, but we seem to be on track for a three to four degree centigrade temperature rise towards the second half of the century. The, and, and, you know, India's policy has always been that the pledge and review mechanism goes against the original intent and purpose of the UNFCCC con concluded in uh, 1992. And India's policy has also been referred to as the polluter pays because our point is countries have essentially benefited hugely from using fossil fuels, have developed to a certain advanced level, like, say, the United States, you know, and are now saying that countries like India who've not had the benefit of development to the same level should be as restrained as the US, which has benefited in terms of putting an emissions cap on it. So that's the essential uh, I would say a disparity that India would see in the treatment. It's like, I've gone ahead and developed and used as many fossil fuels as I want, but now you can't. So there's a certain discriminatory uh, view here. But even with the commitments, if I can point out that US and China, uh, with their present commitments, both will converge at a figure of about 14 tons of per capita GHG emissions by 2030. These are extraordinarily high figures for the two largest emitters in the world and can no way be described as ambitious. India's per capita emissions are 1.7 tons per capita annually. So while India is constantly named as the third largest emitter, we are way, way below the first two. And uh, even the most elevated trajectories do not predict an increase beyond seven to eight tons per capita by 2030 for India. And as I said, China and the US are likely to come down to 14 tons per capita by 2030. So, you know, there's really apples and oranges here. You know, you're asking someone to commit to a much lower uh, cap, who is a much, I would say, lesser polluter, if you like, and likely to be a lesser polluter in the future as well. So this is why we find it difficult in India to understand why we're being asked to step up to the plate and make a commitment. Our commitment is not really going to make any major difference in any case because the two larger powers really have to do this. For India, really our dilemma lies in safeguarding our development prospects without having to accept prematurely any constraint in our energy choices. But if a weak climate regime emerges at Paris, India will be one of the worst affected. In a longer term perspective, India's energy security will be best served in its own interests by a graduated shift from fossil fuels to renewables. And that we are doing and we are committed to do. Solar energy, clean energy, nuclear energy included, and we don't want to be dependent as we are today for 80% of our oil supplies on imports and the dependence on imports of coal and gas rising relentlessly. Right now it's working because the price of oil and gas has come down so drastically. But the day it goes up again, India's economy is going to be in trouble. We're one of the largest importers of fossil fuels. The, our approach should be to highlight the significant efforts we are making to promote renewables, in particular solar energy, as part of the shift away from fossil fuels. We should seek to obtain both finance and technology from a global climate change regime to enable us to accelerate that shift. Uh, this would be a more positive approach, in my view, rather than merely resisting defensively uh, international expectations that we should be more active in mitigation as the third largest source of global GHGs. Um, you know, I thought that Sham Saran's article really summed up the issue beautifully, and in my view, he's one of the most eloquent spokespersons for India's climate change policy. Uh, so I would not really like to add anything beyond that, except that I think 
India really is trying very hard and the, and the lowering cost of solar energy equipment is helping us. Because as you know, we have plenty of sun in India, so that's certainly something we can try. Hydropower is an issue because, again, uh, you know, we need the cooperation of Nepal and Bhutan. With Bhutan, it's working very well, and Bhutanese uh, GDP has gone up higher than Indian GDP as a result of their selling hydropower electricity to us. Nepal, it's a little more contentious, mainly because of the difficult situation within Nepal itself. Uh, and uh, so I think, basically, if we concentrate on getting the nuclear energy component up, developing more solar energy, wind, of course, wind energy as well, and the uh, hydropower, we should be able to significantly reduce Again, everything, I think we need to move away from the centralized model and move towards more local models in this. Lastly, I'm going to just uh, quickly... A quick wrap-up? Yeah, okay. yeah, a quick wrap-up. Uh, on cyber, perhaps, I've just attended the uh, Global Cyberspace Cooperation Summit in New York, and uh, the warfare part of it, uh, cyber warfare was one of the elements we spoke about, but. It was more to talk about how do we develop norms, how do we all come together to talk about these issues, what are the issues that countries who may be cyber rivals in a sense can actually come together and talk about. So if there's any interest in knowing more on the cybersecurity aspects, I'd be happy to speak on that. But I think for the moment, I'd just like to wrap up here by saying I've tried to give you a bird's eye view on both food and water security and climate change issues. Uh, I'm not going to get into cyber in a big way except during the discussion. And uh, I hope I've given you some sort of a image of where India is heading and what our dilemmas and issues are on non-traditional security threats. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Mm -hmm. um, in the interest of time, I'm sure that there's a lot of questions looming out there, so I'm going to hold my questions and open it up to the our guests. If you have a question, um, I'm going to try to capture them in the order that I see them. Just uh, introduce you and raise your hand. I'll point to you and just introduce yourself, please. Sure. sure. Uh, Robert Shreda with International Investor. Thanks very much for that talk. That was not any uh, concise and clarifying of a lot of issues, but even compelling your argument about Missions uh, and the United States position in that, in that realm. But um, let me ask you, I'll, I'll get right to my question. Uh, the urbanization that you started talking and, and addressing at the beginning of your talk, will increasing urbanization result in more health care challenges and particularly the spread of disease? We've seen a couple of scares already this year about some some that have been with us for throughout history, but others, such as MERS, that are starting to be problematic for India and other countries as well. Um, are you worried about that? Uh, what What did you talk about? The emerging well, no emerging diseases. You said MERS. MERS is the uh, the uh, microbial. Oh, the the infection, the hospital yeah. infections. Okay. You know, I think I think you're right because healthcare is a very important issue. Uh, the uh, healthcare issue, the real issue has been that the public healthcare system has broken down to a certain extent. The government hospitals are not able to cope with the increasing population, nor are they equipped with sufficient staff and resources to really handle this. The rural health centers also need a lot of reform. There's a resistance on the part of doctors to going out and working in the rural health centers. But urbanization and epidemic diseases, I think uh, it's, it's both, you know. I think there's a worry about the diseases and the non-treatable, you know, antibiotic resistance, infections, and so on. But uh, I don't think it's as much in India as is made out to be. I think the real, real reason was that Lancet article in London, right. which said that the infection originated in India. But to tell you the honest truth, the level of infections in Indian hospitals of non-resistant is really not that high. Okay. You know, the, 
and I personally feel the greater challenge is to give basic health care to your population, you know, to give maternity care, to reduce infant mortality, to have some kind of basic health care in each village, in each locality, and something which private doctors and hospitals are not charging through their noses for. You, I don't know whether you'll be happy or unhappy to know that the insurance companies are now beginning to spread their wings in all Indian urban areas. And I get at least 20 emails a day uh, asking me to take health insurance, so which is a new phenomenon. You know, this this wasn't the case even just a couple of years ago. So, you know, I think I suspect we're going to face an issue like your Medicare uh, bill uh, before long because I think it's really a question of reform or perish. I think the health sector, the government health sector, the public health sector has to be better because otherwise it's the same problem, you know, how do people afford health insurance in a poor developing country? Uh, we're looking at models like the Thai model, I don't know whether you remember, but uh, Thaksin, the uh, former Prime Minister of Thailand introduced a 30 baht insurance policy and 30 baht is nothing, it's one dollar insurance policy a year for the poorer sections of the population and that was one of the sources of his huge political popularity. And he Im imposed that condition on the hospitals that anybody who had that had to be treated, including private hospitals. Yes? Can you introduce yourself, please? I'm Hari Bangsha. I'm Executive Director of Center for Economic and Technical Studies in Nepal. So I know Lata for a long time. Perhaps she was there in 1980, early 83 to 85, just after Washington. Yeah. yeah. And I came here actually basically to hear you. Mm. So I have two very quick questions. One is about this Nepal India water resources itself, actually. Why is it that we are talking so loudly since 1950s to harness Nepal's water resources in the best interest of our two countries, actually? But nothing substantial has moved in this direction. That is one. Second thing, and perhaps more pertinent question, query is about uh, uh, the fact that uh, China is diverting uh, its rivers, mostly this Brahmaputra, in its inner parts. And today or tomorrow, we, all the countries of South Asia are going to be affected by it, including say, Pakistan, Nepal, uh, Bangladesh, and uh, uh, Bhutan. So is there any way out that uh, we, that is Pakistan, India, Nepal, and Bangladesh, we could make a group actually to raise a formidable voice to deal on this issue with China? Because we have been protesting China on different occasions on our own level, but then nothing fruitful is coming up. So I think a kind of group actually among these low-periphery states would help us better to deal with China. So is there any thinking actually in South Asia? Thanks. Uh, on why there's no progress on the hydroelectric cooperation between India and Nepal, I think the answer is simple. India has offered on many occasions, but there's a certain lack of trust, you know, on the, in the part of Nepal that they worry that these hydroelectric projects will be somehow be used in a way to control Nepal. You know, it's been the constant tension between India and Nepal as to what extent you know, I think it's a constant big neighbor, small neighbor problem, you know, because uh, it's it's very hard to build that level of trust. For instance, we've been able to do it with Bhutan, and as I mentioned, Bhutan has prospered immensely from it, and the same would be true of Nepal. But I think the offer has been made several times by India, but Nepal has not been able to respond positively so far. This is my understanding. Uh, secondly, on the diversion or the possible diversion of the Brahmaputra by China and what action uh, sort of South Asian regional group could take on it, I think one of the reasons we've not been able to put together something on this is essentially because SARC has not been effective, the South Asian <coughs> Association for Regional Cooperation. Uh, and if we could take up subjects like this in SARC or perhaps in a smaller group in BIMSTEC, where Pakistan is not a member, but India, Nepal, and Bangladesh are, uh, a regional or a sub-regional approach like this could perhaps have a better effect. But 
I think the real issue is would China itself be prepared to discuss with this country, each country or with the group of countries, uh, its plans? Because every time we've taken it up bilaterally, India's taken it up bilaterally, we've been told that uh, we're not doing anything and, um, you know, when it, there's not full disclosure of what exactly is happening in the upper reaches of the river, which causes a great deal of disquiet and worry in India. So I'm not so sure that it'll be very practical, but if we did, we do have forums like SARC and BIMSTEC, which I think should take up these issues. And until then, we'll continue discussing it on the track Very two well. level. Keep working at it. Keep working at it. Was there a question? Yes. You know, I would say that, uh, you know, I would say that on, um, on water, as I said, the, uh, the local models have worked well. Let me just look at my notes again. I do have something on water which has done well. I'm not actually, come to think of it, I'm not aware of a specific initiative. The food security bill, as you know, was introduced by the previous uh, administration. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not an initiative of the present administration. And on water, I have personally not seen a, a major initiative emerging. I think it's too complex a subject yet for, for anyone to come up with one major policy initiative. I think we just have to keep chipping away at it. But any sense of where these two stand in the you know, long list of pressing issues that I haven't seen a prioritization. The general tendency in India is to go, uh, you know, to sort of rattle off a whole lot of issues which are important and not really prioritize them. But I would say, yes, food and water would, would always figure in any list of major priorities. Food and water security, health, which you mentioned, Mr. Reiter, and uh, I would say uh, the infrastructure. I would say perhaps for this present administration, things like infrastructure and economic development but are ranked very high. But on the other hand, as I pointed out, you can't get your 8% economic development GDP growth if you don't have the 4% in agriculture. So it's, it's essentially related. Thank you. Yeah. So do you think we're gonna, there's a question oh. I think, you know, uh, for instance, uh, the dialogue that Huma referred to is an important one, the one that I've been participating in, because it's, it's a, a track two or even I would say a track 1.5 at times because we have managed at times to get in someone from the government. And we've actually outlined things we can do together, you know, to improve the quality of water on both sides of the border in the river waters that we share. 
we've talked about cooperation between the arid university uh, culture in Pakistan and India, where we learn how to grow crops with very little uh, water. But I would say where this is concerned, at least bilaterally, I would say the most important thing is to build trust between the two countries. Because if the, if the implication is that, uh, you know, you don't trust the other person, you would not trust the recommendations either. It's very difficult to come up with joint recommendations. That is why I'm a great proponent of dialogue. And whether at the track one, track 1.5, or track two dialogues, I think the more we talk to each other as neighbors, the better the prospects for coming up with joint schemes. There's a lot of scope because ultimately, you know, we're all sharing the same resources and we have the same kind of agricultural practices. We face the same challenges from urbanization and disparities in, uh, in development between different sections of the population. And I think when the bilateral relationships are cordial, there's no limit to what we can't accomplish. I've seen what ASEAN countries have done, for example, and I always hold up ASEAN as an example because uh, the way they've, they've very steadily built the regional relationship and uh, to a point where they truly cooperate with, with each other. There are tensions, of course, you know. I mean, when I was ambassador in Thailand, the Cambodians were, and the Thais were fighting about a temple priya vihar on the border and both claiming it belonged to them and so on. But Overall, they've been able to build a model of regional cooperation, and it's one of my great regrets that uh, we have not been able to do this with SARC, because very often our bilateral concerns have got in the way of this. You know, if we could strengthen SARC, and SARC could really take up these issues of food, water security, health issues, we could have proper exchange programs between all the SARC countries, I think many of these issues could be addressed. If you can just introduce yourself, Ambassador. GMOs, you know, it's a, it's a contentious issue, as you know. Uh, the the genetically modified brinjal, you know, or aubergine, as you call it here, was a huge cause for the activist community. Was it good? <laughs> I'm sure it tasted fine, but but yeah, but you know, I think the real fact is, and this is what the opponents of GMOs forget, is many of the high yield rice uh, strains, the high-yield corn strains and uh, other strains uh, have been around for a very long time. So we are eating GMOs in any case, and it's already in the system. So I personally think the opposition to GMOs is ill-informed. I think to, to just have a knee-jerk Pavlovian reaction that all GMOs are bad is, is not the issue. The issue is you have to back it up with scientific evidence to prove that a particular GMO can be harmful to the human organism, and in which case I think the government then has a duty to ban that particular GMO. But to, to ban GMOs per se, I don't think is any solution, because as I said, if India doesn't increase its crop yields and doesn't go in for uh, GMOs and things, I think the chances of being able to adequately feed your population in future are very dim. Not yet, not yet. It's a case-by-case -case basis, which perhaps is the best way to deal with contentious issues. I wanted to just go back to a point that you raised about um, highlighting the efforts that India is making to move towards renewable energy. And so I think I wanted to know, what is the feasibility of Prime Minister Modi's initiative to boost India's solar capacity, as you mentioned, um, from the three megawatts to a reported 20 gigawatts in the mm -hmm. next five years or so? I think it's pretty good because some of the Indian solar energy companies are doing very well and uh, have been able to build uh, solar technologies for substantially less than uh, some of the international uh, companies. Fortunately for us, we have an unlimited uh, almost capacity for harnessing uh, solar energy. But I think the issue is really uh, to come up with, uh, with, with, again, scaling up the good models that do exist. You know, he 
you would remember there was a very high-profile launch of one solar yep. uh, project in Gujarat, I think it was, mm -hmm. when there was a visiting uh, head of state. The question is, how do you then persuade, again, you know, energy uh, or power is a state subject, you know. It, our big issue in a federal system is how do you get all the states to adopt equal policies and to give equal importance to alternative uh, technologies, because there's better governance in some states than others, there's better awareness of, um, of how these measures will help in the long run. But unfortunately, many administrations take a short-term view and look really at what's going to yield immediate results. Some of these things may not be seen till a few years in the future, but you have to inf invest in these infrastructures. My name is Yerwan Kubashev, I'm from Embassy of Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. uh, let me ask you uh, such a question. Uh, US, uh, USA uh, recently announced its uh, a new Silk Road initiative, and uh, according to this Silk Road initiative, there is a project Castle 1000, mm -hmm. which is uh, uh, about uh, transforming some energy from Central Asia to uh, India and Pakistan, South, and, uh, South Asia. Mm -hmm. What is your evaluation about the prospective of that uh, project and the other projects of like Stati and other? Yeah, you know. Just, uh, sorry, uh, and second. The second one is yeah. with the. Uh, uh, ah, okay. That's it. <laughs> well, you know, I used to deal with, uh, with Central Asian countries at one time, and I was somewhat involved with TAPI and with a couple of the other projects. This has been a long-term dream, you know, in India, I think, as well as in Central Asia, to somehow build those links, yeah. those pipelines, and to bring gas and energy to India. And TAPI started off very well. The, but the problem is we've got bogged down on security issues. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, because the the pipelines do have to pass through Afghanistan and, and Pakistan at the moment. And that is becoming very difficult to resolve. Also, these are hugely expensive projects. So you really have to get conglomerates. You have to get many countries and investors from many countries involved. Because I don't think any one government can bear this full cost. But obviously, the scope exists. And we're still talking about it. And I think TAPI has made some progress recently was what I was told. But I sincerely hope that does happen because I think the prospects for cooperation between India and the countries of Central Asia, particularly Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and uh, Kyrgyzstan, are, are very bright. And if we don't tap that, you know, because we are sort of natural neighbors and uh, you're part of our extended neighborhood. So I think India would, would really like to do more and the fact that Prime Minister Modi made a special visit to the five republics, I think, is very, very significant. Okay. Um, I think we're out of time. Um, but we want to thank you for coming by to visit us. Thank you. And enlightening us. So thank you. Thank you. And I'd like to say that uh, I'm delighted that I didn't have time to talk about cyber because I've talked about nothing but cyber last <laughs> week in, in New York. And I'm so happy none of you asked about it. <laughs>